King Culture presents A Plan for Longevity, a health and wellness initiative for men. Why health? Why now? At King Culture, we're equipping men to become selfless leaders. And part of selfless leadership is developing a strategy that ensures not only your well-being, but the well-being of those you're responsible for. Why do you feel there's just such a lack of trust for the medical industry and how can we change that? I've changed my uh, primary doctor at least three or four times, you know? Trying to be transparent with someone that's new is kind of, should be the route you should take, but not always, you know, the route we always take, so. My primary care physician has been uh, my primary care physician since I was, since I moved to Atlanta when I was like, three or something like yeah. I need to get your doctor contact. <laughs> I, I got you, man. I got you. I'm Dominic Perviance, and on today's episode, we're talking about prioritizing primary care. Who advocates for your health and wellness? Do you have a primary care physician? Why does it matter? In this episode, I'm sitting down with Dr. Ovid Barrow from Emory Hillendale Hospital to better understand how having a primary care doctor can literally save your life. We're going to get into it next. Stay tuned. The King Culture Podcast starts now. So I'm going to welcome you to the King Culture Podcast. This is our Plan for Longevity series. I'm here today with Dr. Ovid Barrow, and we're going to be talking about healthcare advocacy today. And so I'm going to welcome you, Dr. Barrow, and give you a chance to sort of introduce yourself Tell us a little bit about your background and what you do in, um, in your current field. Well, thank you, sir. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and to share some of my experiences. Um, being an African-American and actually coming from South America, I, I came to this country as a, a late teenager um, to Brooklyn. I think a lot of West Indians do go to Brooklyn. Yeah. And um, I went to the military. I did a number of uh, years in the military as a hospital corpsman. And uh, after that, I did several other jobs. I will not give you the details of them, but there were many. And I decided to get into medicine. Um, I went to Downstate Medical School in Brooklyn. And uh, after uh, my residency, I decided to move south. Um, mm -hmm. I came to Georgia, and I started working in Macon. And then from there, I came to uh, DeKalb Medical Center, which is now partnered with Emory. And uh, I've been here for 12 plus years. I work as a hospital corpsman, as, not a hospital corpsman, please remove that. I work as a hospitalist, meaning that I'm an internal medicine doctor, uh, board certified, but I see patients only in the hospital setting. Uh, we see some of the same challenges that the primary care doctors have, but ours are exclusively in the hospital. And what we want to relate to the people is that medicine is like a sort of a relay. We have to make a proper handoff mm -hmm. once that patient is discharged with proper instructions uh, so that the primary care doctor can pick up from that and take it onwards. And so as, as a hospitalist, um, you're, you're primarily responsible for patients once they get to, get to the hospital. And um, are you involved in diagnosing and, and, and uh, um, uh, prescribing treatment, or what do you? What's sort of your involvement with the patients once they enter the hospital? So once they come to the hospital, they will most likely come through the e emergency room. Yeah, yeah. Once they have made an assessment of that patient, uh, it's like uh, asking us for a consult, basically. Okay. Yeah, and what the needs of that patient. Is that patient going to be brought into the hospital uh, 
under observation or inpatient status. Mm -hmm. um, we get them admitted to the hospital and then we do our further diagnostic uh, treatment. The uh, most important part of that is getting a history mm -hmm. uh, and a physical to go along with our diagnostic tests and radiological studies we do. We will make an assessment and then we'll have create a plan and that plan might just be for the hospital setting depending on the condition or it might be need to be carried out uh, in the outpatient setting also. But our main job is in the hospital. Okay. And, and so a patient goes to the emergency room, they see an emergency room doctor, and then there's a handoff to, to you and you decide what, what treatment happens from there. That is correct. All right. Um, what, are, what are some of the uh, consistent trends that you're seeing in, in the, the type of patients you're, that um, you're, you're treating? And sort of what do you think are some of the long-term risks that, um, that our audience is, you know, yet men probably age from 18 to 34, um, what are some of the long-term healthcare risks that they should be aware of and should be preparing for? Well, it's quite a few, but I'll try, try to narrow them down. Um, one of the big problems that we're seeing right now is um, marijuana use. So we're seeing many patients come in really? with, um, with nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, uh, severe dehydration, and this is from the uh, marijuana. It's the, overuse of it. Well, not only that, it's not only the overuse. Uh, we don't know what's in, in these, yeah. these, uh, uh, these, these uh, drugs. And so um, they're creating um, GI distress. So when someone is vomiting violently, they can also tear part of the lining of the throat and they might have a bleed. And again, we're not sure if it is that that is causing it, so we'll have to do further uh, investigative studies. Uh, but marijuana is a real big one. We're seeing a lot of uh, uh. what we call cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Wow. So this is a known entity, and it's, it's really causing a ding on the healthcare services. And what, what are some of the other things? Uh, I would say high blood pressure. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing it earlier because it has to do with our diet and lack thereof exercise. Uh, modernized countries now, we are not doing as many as much exercise as we ought to. And so we're seeing people coming in and not only coming in with new cases of high blood pressure, but sometimes in situations where their kidneys are already affected. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that is really concerning for us all. Wow. Um, what have, given, given some of the things that you're seeing um, on, on a daily basis, what are the things that you would recommend uh, people do just in preventative activities or things that they should be doing ongoing to, to make sure that they have um, better long-term health, health outcomes and they're not having to um, be hospitalized and have to, you know, seek treatment? I think one of the most important thing is, uh, is to access the healthcare system earlier. Mm. Um, I do advocate and I do tell patients that they need to um, know that we do have health coverage for them in the event that they don't have for themselves. Um, they can access uh, facilities such as Grady Clinics, uh, Oakhurst Clinics, uh, Grady Hospital, get themselves into the system earlier. In that way, we can, we can uh, prevent uh, further destruction in some diseases if we catch them early. So again, early access to the healthcare system would probably be the most important thing. And uh, some of the places you mentioned are, 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 are local, local to Atlanta, um, for those people that may be listening that outside of the Atlanta region. Um, so you said this early access to um, or entering the healthcare system earlier 
Um, what are some of the entry points to the healthcare system before you get sick, before there's a major health issue? Where should you be going first? Who's like the first advocate that you should be um, talking to? That would be a primary care doctor in the clinic setting. Uh, I, I see them as quarterbacks, uh, knowing exactly what's going on with you, creating, building a relationship with you, uh, communicating with you, and uh, basically knowing you uh, is going to be very, very important. Now, for some people may not even understand what a primary care doctor is. Can you just sort of explain what that is and, and what is the extent of, of that relationship and um, what kind of services a, a primary care doctor is going to be providing? So a primary care doctor is a general practitioner. Um, in the olden days, they, they saw patients from what we say from the womb to the tomb. Okay. Uh, they saw everything. Um, now medicine has become more sectionalized, but still we do have a general practitioner. Uh, they will see you for your history and physical. Um, you, they also provide services for nutrition, diet, exercises. Uh, they provide um, immunization. So those are some of the services that they offer, mainly history and physical exam, mm -hmm. uh, diagnosing uh, conditions that you might have or didn't know you have. Uh, that's the primary role. Uh, they also act as an advocate. They can be a go-between once you're admitted to a hospital. Some people like to have their uh, primary care doctor involved. And again, that's the relationship that is uh, created uh, in the outpatient setting. Um, and then their history and their information goes back to that primary care. When, when the patient is discharged, we do a summary of their, their, their admission. And that primary care doctor should be one of, of the people that that information goes to so they can see what happened in the hospital and what they need to uh, pick up from. So this is, so what I'm hearing the primary care doctor is your, your doctor that you see that keeps your medical records, that knows everything that's going on with you. And there's so many, your, your, their, their, your primary point of contact, or at least your first point of contact when you're, when you're entering the healthcare system, is that fair? It should be, it should but be. many times it's not. Uh, sometimes uh, the hospitalist or the emergency room doctor becomes that primary, and this is what we're trying to prevent. Now, now um, can you explain why um, it's, better, it's better for the patient and perhaps better for the hospital for the patient to see their primary care doctor first before they go to the emergency room if they have an issue? Or am I, or am I mischaracterizing that? Well, it depends. Okay. It depends on if it's more of a chronic problem that is just bothering someone. If it's something that happens suddenly and they cannot access or they don't have communication with a primary care doctor, then certainly they, the they, make, they make the best move. Sometimes it might be better for them to call, call ahead um, and uh, see if it requires them getting an ambulance or not. But most people uh, will call the ambulance, but we do have a fair amount of people that will access the system on their own by, by driving in or walking in. Now, how do you know if you're having a medical, you're having symptoms, how do you know if I need to just make an appointment to see my primary care doctor or I need to go to the emergency room or do I need to go to an urgent care? Or do I, is this something I need to go to a clinic for? Um, how do you make the distinction? And oftentimes the patient has to make that distinction for themselves or at least figure out how to make that distinction for themselves. So what, what would you recommend? So pain is a vital sign. Yeah. So most times it's the pain that it becomes unbearable yeah. um, or, or something that is very strange or annoying you know, to the patient that will make them decide to come to the hospital. 
and sometimes it's it's good and sometimes it's bad because if they they're not having that that uh, fright or scare sometimes they don't come and yeah. um, it can get bad and this is this is a particular issue for men because men at least we like to pretend we have a higher tolerance for pain we'll put up with stuff for a longer period of time um, we, we in some earlier podcasts we were just talking about some of the distrust um, with the medical system and some of the fear um, sometimes we just don't want to know what it is um, sometimes we feel what well, I don't want I, I can't pay for it um, so what do you what do you tell particularly men that just they're, they're having symptoms and they're they're trying to make a decision whether or not they want to go to a doctor um, and they're hesitant what, what do you say to them I would say it's better to know than not to yeah, know. Yeah. As I said before, there are situations that can brew for a while and just continue to get worse. If we access or get information on that, that condition earlier, we might be able to cure it or take yeah. care of it. And so that's why I would tell them. Um, I would say that if it, if it requires them going to a primary care physician, many times they don't know how much it will cost. And mm -hmm. so sometimes there are ways you can call those clinics and find out what is the base fee for me to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, it's best they do something like that. Um, if not, they can go to some of the clinics that we do have in the community that will provide that care for them. All right. Um, I, I, I think you, you talked a little bit about this. Um, when you, uh, if it's an emergency, like if there's a, if there's, um, you know, something to deal with the heart or, or, you know, you break a leg or something like that, that's the emergency room. If it's a chronic condition, um, then you need to see your primary care doctor. Is that correct or, or should we be thinking about it differently? For the most part, I think the patient has a sense of yeah. what is, if it's getting worse or not. And we use that, we ask the patient to use that as a guide, mm. uh, because at the same time we don't want to overcrowd our emergency rooms yes, with, yes. with conditions like that. But if it's if it is certainly if it's uh, chest pain that is, you know, crushing chest pain, uh, they might better be uh, might be better for them to call and to get an ambulance uh, because if they need to have some care that starts from the outpatient setting or in their home, we can get that if there's an ambulance on board versus them trying to c drive in on their own. So uh, in those situations, we always advise that you call the, call the EMS system. They'll, they'll be a good They'll guy. be able to adv yes. advise you on That's what correct. you need to do. Okay. Um, in, in terms of a primary care doctor, uh, what should uh, a young man be looking for? Because um, we, everyone that we talked to said that's what everyone that just should be a thing that you just a part of your regimen you should have a primary care doctor that's keeping it right keeping your medical records and that can advocate for you um what are the type of things that you're looking for in a good primary care doctor this is this is going to be a long-term relationship this is going to be someone that's going to be with you for an extended period of time um so what are the kind of things that you're looking for and what kind of relationship should you expect from your primary care doctor? So I think the most important thing is uh, trust. Yeah. Um, because with trust, it will dictate therapy. You know, if somebody's going to follow through with what their doctor says, communication is always going to be the key. How do you communicate? Uh, do you feel comfortable when you sit and you have to talk, especially when you're in your most vulnerable uh, yeah. situation, having to take off your clothing yeah. and expose yourself to yeah. someone and have someone touch you? There has to be a level of trust and great communication yeah. um, where the doctor can listen to you. 
you want to have a doctor who can actually sit and watch you eye to eye. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that really creates a bond there. And mm -hmm. so that, those are some of the things I would look for. And, and I want a doctor who also circles back and makes sure that I clearly understand what the issues are. So it's someone that you feel comfortable being transparent and open with and someone that is um, a clear enough communicator that they can communicate with you. Um, are there things that you need to be equipped to do when you go in to see your primary care doctor that can ensure that, you know, he or she understands what's going on with you and they can give the right treatment? I know sometimes, you know, people aren't always the most transparent or, and I've had instances where, um, you know, I didn't know what to, what necessarily to say or what questions to ask. And so what kind of preparation do you need to do before you actually go see your doctor um, so you can ensure that you get the best treatment? Well, I would say knowing your family history is very yeah. important. Um, and, and there are certain things that you can start out with. I think the, the real onus is on that physician and the skill set of that physician to extract information from you. You already know what's going on, um, but that, that physician has to be the one who's able to get that information out from you. So again, knowing your basic family history would be very, very important. Or knowing when things happened for the first time. When did you feel that chest pain? What was the surrounding circumstances? So those are certain things you would want to key in on. What happened? It's just like if you go to the mechanic and you say, hey, you know what? I notice every time I do this, yeah, this happens, yeah, yeah. right? And it only occurs when I do this. So those are some of the similarities between us and all the professionals that I would like to bring to the patient. Yeah, and so when, when you're listening to a patient and you're asking questions and you're doing the exam, what are the triggers? What are you looking for? What are you trying to get from that patient so that you can be better equipped to diagnose what's going on with them? Well, I would say it starts from you when you go out to meet the patient, if the patient's in the, in the, in the waiting area, or once you present yourself in the room. Um, in certain clinics, uh, physicians will go out and greet their patients and bring them back to the room. Um, and so you will, uh, at that time, I would watch their, their gait. I would look and see how they walk or once I enter the room or they have to move or change clothing, I would look to see how they're getting up, how they're moving. That is part of my assessment. When I talk to a patient and ask them questions, how focused are they? Are they answering the questions correctly? Um, so those are some of the things we look for. And then we'll do the physical exams. We, of course, we listen to the heart. We want to hear how the heart is beating, if the rhythm is regular or not. If there's a beat, if there are what we call murmurs, if the doors are not closing or they're making noises when they close. So those are some of the things we look for. We listen to their lungs to hear if their breathing is equal on both sides or if there's diminished breathing or what we call wheezes or um, or or loud uh, lung sounds. So those are some of the things we look for. The belly, we want to hear the, the movement of the, the, the belly. We want to hear it making noises yeah. and talking to you. Um, we want to look at their feet. We want to look at their nails, um, making sure they don't have buckling. Uh, could be from smoking. Sometimes they have poor blood flow. We want to feel pulses. So those are general things that we look at. We can look at their eyes and make sure that they have equal gaze. Um, those are just the, some of the things. That yeah, it's do. interesting. I didn't. I wouldn't think that you know the doctor's looking at everything. Yeah, it's how you walk and how you present yourself in order to figure out the, the diet. Because there may be some things that the patient can't even communicate that the doctor sees that the patient would, would may not even be aware of. Um, 
And once you get all this information, how do you then create a, a diagnosis and then and then make a treatment recommendation? Well, it has to do with the, uh, on, unless it's a, a first visit. But if mm. it's a visit where uh, they're coming in and they give you they give you some information, this is why the history is so important and how we extract that information because that along with our physical exams and then if we do radiological uh, studies or lab work, then we can compile that data, that information and say, ah, this is what it is. We'll get an impression. We have something called a differential that we work with. And I'll give you an example. If you have chest pain, yeah. I, could, I, I would start from outside, the muscular skeletal. And there are other things that are going on in the chest. Is it the heart? Is it the lungs? Is it the bone? Is, so those are the things we're going to look uh, at. And then when I do my physical exam, if when I press on the chest, you say, ah, that hurts. Then I know it's mostly something external, and it's not necessarily the heart. Um, so th that's just a simple way of how we look at things. We put differentials together. And, and how can a patient be better equipped to um, evaluate treatment recommendations? You know, if you're, you're, if you're making a, uh, if a doctor makes a, a recommendation and so they have some choices, you know, you can do X or you can do Y or you can do Z, how, how can they better be equipped to, to make a decision? Well, having an informed patient is always great. Yeah. So again, it depends on which, which part of that relationship is going on. Mm -hmm. Is this the first time? Is this things that have happened before? I like the way my doctors sit down. They talk to me. I can trust them. Um, now with Google, you know, a lot yeah. of patients... I, about ask you. <laughs> I, I know you, you said it's good for patients to be informed. Is yes. that sometimes problematic? Because Dr. Google has put a lot of people in a grade, you know, just you're, you're, you're reading like I got a headache and or something, you have a brain tumor or something like that. So, so I, I would say it, it creates a good conversation. Okay. Though. So even though they might be coming with, and that's what you want a patient sometimes to go read and come back and say, ah, you know what? Well, this is what presents there. Yes, there's some validity to that, but it was not properly studied or it's not the common practice. And this is how we do it. And this is why we do so. So that is already telling me a patient is already trying to get and be an advocate for themselves yeah. and trying to get further information on what's going on with them. And they just want to make sure that they be treated correctly. So again, this is where the trust and good communication is going to help. So it's not a problem for you with, with patients just going and doing it, going to the internet and getting research and be able to ask questions. No, I, I really no. I, I like it because it tells me that this person is interested in themselves. So I use it as a teaching point, um, and I think it's great. I really do. They're being advocates. They should be the number one advocate. Yes. Yeah. That, that's come up in almost all of our conversations. Just being informed, not only knowing your family history, doing the research about the particular symptoms you have, so you can be better equipped and you go talk to your doctor. Um, you had mentioned earlier just, uh, you know, the marijuana use. Um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people that may have some substance abuse issue and they're coming to see you and they're not 100% honest about what they're doing. And so can you talk a little bit about how important it is for patients like you're you're um, you're not the police, <laughs> you know. You're trying to help them medically, um, and sometimes people just don't want to be honest for a variety of reasons. Um, can you talk about how in, important that is, and and what would you say to someone that has they're a little bit hesitant about being completely transparent? I think it starts also with the physician yeah. or the practitioner, right? Yeah. How they present themselves to the patient. 
Um, and so the patient's looking for these cues, should I be honest? And I do let the patients know. I, after, if I read their chart and I look in, in the hospital, I have the privilege sometimes of looking at their labs and seeing yeah. certain things, so then I can target my conversation towards that, looking and see what they presented to the emergency room with. Um, and then I will actually go into those conversations asking them, these are some of the things that I'm concerned about. Yeah. And I let them know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a physician, not a, not, a, not a cop. I'm not here to, you know, pass judgment or anything like that. Um, I'm here to help you, and this is how I can help you. I'll deal with the immediate problem now. We can always discuss the things that led up to that right now. Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of ease their mind on that. And then I, I let them know it's important, for example, with marijuana use, um, not going down some other dark alley in terms of trying to figure out what's going on. And so that helps me with them being honest. Yeah. Um, just what are the, the uh, we were talking a little bit about primary care. Um, you know, when you go in to see your, your primary care doctor, you know, how often should you be going in? And what are the things that, you know, you know, you should be doing annually or quarterly? Is it blood work or now, what should be What should you be monitoring in your, with your primary care on an ongoing basis, and how often should you be doing it? So that's a very important question. If I tell you the answer, you should have been seeing a doctor every year at least. Every year. Uh, from the beginning, the inception of life, with your parents taking you there. Um, I think it desensitizes people from getting scared. Yeah. Um, so if this was something regularly done, and they see it as not as an intimidating uh, uh, place, I think they'll continue with that. So at least every year. There are markers and milestones in our health yeah. uh, based on age. So again, those are the, the things you're going to be looking for uh, when you hit a certain age. Uh, what are the recommendations for for prostate exams, what a recommendation for colonoscopy. Um, but with you going every year, we can also pick up on things that are beginning to happen earlier. With, mm -hmm. with us having an epidemic of diabetes and, mm -hmm. and these conditions, we can pick up pre-diabetes and we can actually prevent you from becoming diabetic once we lay out a plan for you. So those are some of the things that you want to do. That's why we want to go early because, for example, diabetes can, you can have pre-diabetes for 10, 15 years before you go into diabetes. So again, if we catch this early, we can help do some behavior modification and we can help you with diet and nutrition. So you're going to see a primary care doctor once a year. They're doing blood work. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I'm not sure what it's called, mm -hmm. but you, it's a full it's workup. It's different panels, but yeah, we do. We look at your blood to see uh, if you're anemic, uh, make sure you don't have any infections. Uh, we look at your urine to make sure you don't have a urinary tract infection. Make sure you're not spilling proteins in your urine. Uh, we look at your potassium. Uh, these are micronutrients that are very important for us. Um, right. They keep your muscles in tune. They keep your heart beating. Um, we look for vitamin D in African-American communities. We, our numbers run low. Um, it's just because of our genetic makeup. So this has a lot of uh, problems recently we are hearing. It's yeah. playing a role in our immune system and um, even mood. So these are some of the, the reasons why we need to go and have those annual checkups. And then we can make recommendations based on those numbers. Yeah, and, and so it's, it's, it's the urine, it's blood work and physical, you know, someone's doing a physical exam. You should do that once a year and that's gonna give your 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 primary care doctor the information that they need to be able to monitor your ongoing health and right. just everyone no matter how young you are should 
see a doctor once a year. I agree, every year. Um, I think some of the barriers are people not knowing this, uh, yeah. people feeling healthy and feeling strong, and, and because they feel a certain way, they don't realize yeah. that things are, are yeah. breaking down slowly yeah, I mean, in the body. I, I love what you said, you know, a lot of us, doctor, doctor equals sick. So I only see a doctor or go to a hospital or see any kind of medical profession when I'm ill. And what you're suggesting is you need to see one before you get ill, just on a continued basis, just to monitor. Just like, you know, I get my oil changed every three to 6,000 miles. Um, you, you go get uh, every, you know, 60,000 miles or so, you go get your, your, your car and engine checked up. We should be doing the same thing with our physical body every year. Yes, um, I agree. I think we pay more attention to, to those car. things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We get annoyed when we see those lights showing up, yeah, yeah. Uh, telling us, hey, get your engine oil checked. And so we, we, t we, we look at that much more carefully than we do our bodies. Um, and there's, there's an old saying that an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. And I really do believe that. Uh, the earlier we, as I said before, the earlier we can recognize certain problems, we can, we can actually avoid those things. Yeah. Um, just, just a few more questions. One of the things that you see, um, um, you can get a better understanding of, I think you mentioned this earlier, you're seeing your primary care doctor, you're doing your annual checkup. They also are aware of your family history and they can give you what kind of procedures you need to be doing at what age. And so, you know, your colonoscopy, your prostate exam, those are typically 45, if I'm mistaken. Yes, um, African-Americans, um, 45. Now the insurance companies are paying for those things. Before you had to word them in a certain way um, and if it was not done correctly the insurance companies wouldn't pay and that's when a lot of times doctors had to be an advocate, a very strong advocate to say hey you know what my patient needs to be um, need to, to have this study done. Um, but yes uh, 45 is a big age. Yeah and, and it's, it is different if your family history um, has, um, from my understanding, say for colon cancer, for example, if you have a, a family history where people in your family have contracted colon cancer at a younger age, you can get a colonoscopy younger than 45. Is that correct? Oh, yes, and especially the types of, if, if you know the types of uh, um, problem that they have, the cancer that they have is even more important because then you can start surveillance even as in, in your teens. Really? Um, yes. Um, depending on, and there are some hereditary uh, colon cancers uh, that causes thousands of little polyps gr to grow in your colon. And so those are surveyed and you might need to have your colon removed. Um, so yes, it is very, very important that knowing your family history can make a big difference in your care. Right, right. Um, so. Um, we know a lot of young men, uh, you, you talked about marijuana use again earlier, you know a lot of young men use substances, um, they may, you know, they drink, they may use, you know, smoke marijuana, use some other, other substances, um, you know, we're not here to pass judgment or say, you know, you, know, you make decisions on how you're going to manage your, you know, uh, manage your life. Um, but what would you say to them? What kind of recommendations would you have to someone who has decided they're going to, you know, you know, engage in using using substance um, substances, and um, that's just the life decision that they're going to make? You know, as a doctor, what sh what would you say to them, and how should they be managing that decision? 
You know, it's, it's funny that you've asked because I've had quite a few patients, and this is how I answer that, how, how I deal with that. I come, from an, I come to them from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I had a patient recently, um, last week, and he came in, young man trying to do the best for his family, young family, has an eighth-month-old son, you know, has a girlfriend that he's planning to get married with, and they're living as a couple, and um, working hard but smoking lots of weed. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he would smoke at least $200 of weed, one to $200 of weed a week. And so what I did, I, we, we sat down and we did a little math with that amount of money that he's spending. And so when I showed him, I think it came out to over $5,000 a year. And then we spoke about him putting that money because he said, I want to do better for my son. I said, here's one option. You could cut back on your weed so you can give this child a chance to continue in a good pathway. So we looked at the, we looked at the economic impact on them. Um, and then he actually, when I went back to see him, he had his girlfriend there. And he, he goes, this is the doctor I was telling you about. Ah, he was telling me how much money I'm losing. It's real. It's real. We got to stop. I got to stop, you know. And the girlfriend agreed. And she was happy that I actually brought this to his attention. So I look at the economic impact. Um, uh, we also look at, uh, again, the health concerns that you're, you're going through. We're not sure what some of the chemicals are in, these, in the marijuana. Um, some of it has been spiked, actually, with other more addictive drugs. And so you might think you're just using marijuana, but it's got some other addictive drugs. And then you might have to go back to your, whoever's giving you this stuff to you know, say, hey, what's in this stuff? It's yeah. really making me feel great. And then they'll set you up with something else. So it's a gateway to a lot of other drugs. Um, marijuana is, uh, but we can talk about alcohol the same way. Yeah, and so I, what, what everyone tells you is moderation. <clears throat> but the problem with, with telling someone <laughs> to use whatever substance uh, moderately is that no one knows where that line is. Like what's moderation? Like what's balance? And how do you know when you're overbalanced in, in using the substance, at least in, in to a degree that's gonna affect you, your, your health? It's, it's a very, very tough question. Let's look at alcohol. Yeah. Um, alcohol is a drug that causes a lot of problems, even not to the individual, but the families. Yeah. It's destroyed families, it's destroyed kids, the way how they perceive things. Um, alcohol is destroying you regardless of the recommendations of two drinks a day uh, for male and one drink a day for women. Um, you will get something called fatty liver, and you cannot live without your liver because almost everything that comes into the body has to be detoxified by the liver. So you put in an extra strain on that liver. And the, and the thing about alcohol, how we know it's a poison? Because it crosses what is called a blood-brain barrier. It doesn't even need to just go to the liver first and be broken down into its chemicals. It actually goes to the brain. That's why you feel nice. That's why you feel uninhibited. Yeah. So yes, it is doing damage to you, even though you're feeling like um, great. And I always tell the young men, um, alcohol is going to cause some body changes also. Yeah. Men who drink and drink extensively will end up having uh, breast tissue, uh, what we call gynecomastia. Um, and they're, they're, it's just, it's, overall, it's not going gonna, gonna to give them poor health. Yeah. So overall, like, if, you, if you're going to use it, you have to understand what the, what the risks are and be able to so, sort of manage your decision based on, you know, at least be informed in, in what the risks are before you decide at what level you would engage 
and using a substance. And that is true, and a lot of times it's used when they're out partying and they feel good and they feel that, hey, you know what, I'm steady, I can drive. And you're yeah. not only putting yourself at risk, you're putting others at risk. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, get on the highway on the wrong, wrong side and, and create a lot of destruction. So we tell people that even if they are going to do it, uh, just be responsible. Have, have a designated, designated driver. driver. And now with having things like Uber and these things, and even with those, we have to be careful because we have to be careful the cars that we're going into, who came to pick us up, you know, how do we approach that, that kind of uh, communication to know if this person is there for me or for someone else. So um, it's, it requires a little more planning than they, they think. Yeah. Um, sort of on the same lines, what advice do you give to guys who are sexually active and they're running a risk of, of getting, getting some sort of STD? Um, you know, what should they know? How should they prepare and protect not only themselves, but their, their partner? Um, it's, it's a very, very good question. And there, I remember back in the days when things like HIV came out, um, we looked at people, how they looked cachectic, and they looked uh, a certain way, and we, we were stereotyping people as, oh, that person's got AIDS or HIV. You can't tell. Yeah. You cannot tell. So using proper prevention is important. Um, and some of these uh, conditions that, we, that we, you might find yourself in, or if you get some sexually transmitted diseases, they create scars in the uterine tube. Mm -hmm. And you, later on, you can end up having chronic um, uh, prostate problems. Yeah. So this is why we advise you, even if you, there's a cure for some of these diseases, sometimes they don't go away completely. So you have to make sure um, that you're not caught up. And especially in, in an area like Atlanta that is known for a lot of um, HIV, it's something you can't really predict. If you're having unprotected sex, you're having sex with everyone that and that, that unprotected has person yeah. has been having sex with. Yeah. And um, there are instances where people know that they have sexually transmitted diseases and they do not let you know. Yeah. They're angry. So you have to protect yourself. Yeah, and, and also, be, have some honest conversations with someone that you're going to be sexually active with so you know what their status is and and they know what your status is is how you know you can keep keep both of you safe and, and I would say it. that even with those conversations unless they're truly honest yeah. because uh, you meet the representative of that person if you're meeting them for the yeah. first time yeah. um, it would it would call for you really knowing that person really wanted to make that leap it's a leap of faith you're yeah. taking um, yeah, and this is also just to, because some people, you may have a STD and not know, um, and so this is goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You're seeing a primary care doctor, you're getting blood work every year. Is that, do they look for STDs? Is that a, is something that's included? Can you request that it's included every year? Or? So yes, you can always ask for that. Um, that is probably recommended by pediatricians at a certain age, and then once you move over into the adult world, um, there are certain um, studies you can ask for. So one of the, the health issues that is um, pretty prevalent, particularly with African Americans, is sickle cell disease. Can you describe what, uh, what the disease is and how it can be prevented? That's a very, very important question, um, especially with uh, sickle cell uh, being a big um, bloodborne uh, illness that we do have that people are born with. Mm. Um, this is not a condition that somebody goes out there and they inherit like that or pick up. Um, you're born with that. Okay. It's something you get from your parents. And so 
Um, the, the condition with sickle cell is that it creates a lot of pain and it affects multiple organs. And this is because of the shape of the cell. It loses its ability to be oval. And so it's more of a sickling, and that's why it's called. When it's viewed under the microscope, it looks like a sickle. And um, because of that, it can cause a lot of medical issues. It can sickle or, or uh, clump anywhere in the body. And then with that clumping, you'll have poor circulation going to that organ, and then you can have destruction of that organ. Uh, for one, especially the spleen, um, patients can have um, their spleen rupture pretty early if they're involved in sports or or you can have your spleen basically dying off on you. So uh, a lot of patients by the age of 10, they don't have a, a functioning spleen. Mm. Um, uh, you can have strokes. Many kids will have strokes in the younger ages, uh, babies that have strokes uh, because of sickle cell. And so it's a lifelong disease. There's no cure for sickle cell right now. But what you want to do, you want to talk to the young, young, young folks about uh, if they're going to engage in any kind of activity, sexual activity, let them know if they, are, if they carry the trait or if they, if they have the full disease. Um, because in that way, if their partner uh, also has the trait or the disease, they can now have a child with that condition. And that is what you want to prevent. How do you, how do you treat it? Um, well, you, we try to do prevent, prevention, which is hydrating the patient. A lot of times if you're, you're dehydrated, uh, less volume in the body, more sickling, cold weather will affect it. So we try to, and good, good nutritional diet. Um, so we add leafy green vegetables, but it's very hard to tell young yeah. people to eat leafy green yeah, vegetables yeah. or to hydrate themselves. Um, so when they come into the hospital, again, we give them lots of fluids. We give them uh, oxygenation and we will give them pain medications. Now herein lies the problem. Um, pain, uh, sickle cell patients for the most part will always have pain. So it's not like they're pain, pain free, uh, but what level of pain do they have? And then here comes the prejudiceness uh, of the doctors or the healthcare workers because this person's asking for pain meds yeah. and we feel that they're drug seeking. Yeah. Um, the results show that, uh, the studies show that very, very small, small, small amount of folks that do have sickle cell disease actually die from drug overdose. Mm -hmm. And that is the problem. How do we relieve pain? Yeah. How do we prevent this person from becoming addicted to this pain medication to the point where now they're going and seeking other forms of getting this medi medicine that we will send them home on? See. Opioids is a problem, but how do we address true pain and uh, prevent somebody from becoming an addicted. That's good. The last question is if you were just, if you're talking to a young man, you know, you know, he's, uh, you know, maybe single or married, just kind of starting off with his life. He's, he's generally healthy. Um, he d doesn't really see the need or feel the pressure to, to, you know, see a doctor or manage his health. He's worried about how much it costs and how much time it's going to take. And he's, you know, he plays ball every, <laughs> every other weekend, so he feels physically fine. Um, but which, what would you say to him as a doctor and what kind of recommend, what recommendations would you make to him um, uh, to ensure that he has better long-term health outcomes, even though it may not be a, feel like a priority right now? And that's very, very difficult because you, get, you have hormones raging, yeah. you have uh, jobs and you have 
some fancy things like cars going on and, and the priority. I think prioritizing and understanding that at some point in time, uh, even though you might be able to jump high and dunk, you're coming down on those knees and, yeah. and they're yeah. shocks and after a while they'll give out. Yeah. Um, I think using their car is one of the best things, you exactly. know, to, to yeah. example of, of what, how they should care for themselves. Um, it is a very, very tough question um, because it's something that we've actually uh, created um, organizations to help women with that and none has really been created for men. Yeah. Um, I think there are about five organizations for women but none are for men at, at the federal level. So it's something that we really need to go aggressively after and try to give them these milestones and have them come in and know more of their history. I think starting with the family, knowing the family history would be important, uh, knowing that some of the, the common causes of death which is coronary artery disease and some of the things that can cause that. Um, diet and exercise is very important, nutrition, but again not knowing uh, these micro levels of things that are happening in your body are important. It is not just the physical structure. You could look at a house and say, oh, that house looks great, but you don't know the electrical or the wiring or the plumbing that's going on in that house. So it's important for them to understand that. Yeah, that's good advice. Thank you, Dr. Barrow. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Right. Pleasure has been mine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the King Culture Podcast. For more information on a plan for longevity, visit us online at kingculture.org and fill out your personal health inventory. Follow us on social media at King Culture Inc. And don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe.